We're here. For those of you who came for the first time, welcome. We're so happy you're here. You're actually a week early uh, because we've been advertising and gearing up for our big preview service next week. I was joking, by the way, you're not a week early. We're really glad you're here. Um, But this is the first time, Hope Brooklyn, we're a church plant, part of the Hope Church NYC network. We've been gathering since the summer uh, for little dinners and sort of getting to know each other, build community. And this is the first time we've gathered in this space. Didn't the team do such a good job up here? Like, it's really cool. Um, my name's Russell, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're just really excited you're here. So what we're gonna do is uh, we've been examining the last couple weeks, uh, the series, What is the Gospel? Basic question, what is the gospel? Um, what is so good about this news that it makes a group of people want to start a church completely centered on and around this news? And it's interesting, I'm like, if you're like me, uh, sometimes we can get a sense of what is true. We get a, a sense of the transcendent of the divine, but then life happens, uh, details get in the way, we forget. And it's ironic, but in church planting, where it starts with something so pure of wanting people to come and experience real community, wanting people to experience true forgiveness, wanting to break through the walls of doubt and fear and pain and tell people you are so deeply loved by your creator. To find reconciliation, details get in the way for us too. And you wake up one morning, you're like, what are we doing? Like all of this, it takes time, it takes energy. And, and so this, this series that we're, as the church is gearing up, um, as we're getting ready for our preview next week, as we're just so, just a baby as a church, we wanna go to those stories that remind us this is why we're doing it. This is the good news that compels us all to gather and talk about it. So today we're gonna be in Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, And we're gonna be reading from verse one to verse 14. And this is how it reads. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and he put that child in the middle of them. And he said, I tell you, unless you turn back and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it'd be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. So if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. Take consider that you don't look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you, In heaven, their angels continually see the face of my father. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any of these little ones should be lost. Sounds like good news, right? The millstone going around the neck and everything. Yeah. Um, I think what's so interesting is that what we just read is Jesus speaking the entire time. And Jesus' entire discourse is a response to the disciples' question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Everything he just said in some way is a response to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it's ironic because for the last three chapters, or I'm sorry, the last two chapters, no less than three times, Jesus has told his disciples, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be betrayed into the hands of sinners. I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna be killed and I'm gonna be resurrected. He told his disciples where we're going, I'm about to die. So it's an odd question for a group following someone headed to their death, is it not? But when you think about it, it's really not that odd because we are so schooled, you and I, in the business of assigning status to people and making judgments based on that status that it's quite natural. Case in point, I was working on this sermon uh, about a week ago on a Wednesday in the morning. For that lunch, uh, the pastors, there's some pastors in the city who gather for lunch every month. And there was a moment where uh, you're sort of mingling before lunch and I saw two pastors, one of them, neither of them I knew personally. One of them though was more well-known in the city than the other one. And they were sort of both standing like to to be approached to talk to. And my first inclination was to go to the one more well-known. Why? Because we're raised in the school that says, oh, big church, two points. Oh, pretty face, one point. Oh, you have scars in your life? Well, that's a minus one point. Oh, you've been divorced, minus two points. And it goes on and on and on. We are taught from a very young age the metrics, the scales of this gets you more points, this gets you less points, and we build this hierarchy of who's more valuable and who's less valuable. So the disciples assumed that Jesus' kingdom will operate like the kingdoms they've always been a part of where hierarchy is assumed to be necessary to any kingdom. So by this question, they're demonstrating their lack of understanding of the gospel. The question, in fact, is a denial of the type of community Jesus came to establish, which means it's a denial of the gospel, which means it's a denial of Jesus himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to learn lessons the first time. That was a joke, right? You know, none of us learned lessons the first time. Four, five, six, seven, they're lessons I'm still learning that I've yet to get. I feel like um, so much of the Christian life, which C.S. Lewis said, when you become a Christian, it's not necessarily about learning new things, it's about unlearning what we were taught, unlearning old habit patterns, unlearning old modes of thinking, unlearning the ways that we assign status to people and construct our hierarchies in the church. But Jesus is patient, like a good shepherd. And so he illustrates the gospel, the good news yet again. He illustrates why he's gathered this group of 12 and the kingdom that he's here to establish. And he stands a child in the middle of them. And he says, unless you turn back and become as a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles himself 
as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one of these children in my name receives me. Now, it's tempting to see this image as a very cutesy, innocent, naive, sentimental picture. Did y'all ever see the, uh, uh, the Christmas Carol with George C. Scott? You know the old one? A few people? There's a scene in it where the, the ghost of Christmas present, he like gets to this point where he stops making Mary and he like kind of rebukes Scrooge a bit and he pulls back his cloak and there's two children underneath his cloak. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? And the children have like the deepest like black makeup to be soot and they're just staring up like, at Scrooge. They just have this innocent, naive, meek face. And that's, that's where my mind goes to when I hear this story. Jesus takes the child and stands in the middle and says, become like this child. And the child's like, you know, that's not what's going on. The gospel, the good news is not sentimental. Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite theologians puts it this way. The great enemy of the church is not atheism, but sentimentality. We put compassion and love in the place of the crucified savior. If the gospel is nothing more than a description of a parent offering compassion to innocent, meek, naive children, it's not the gospel. We've substituted the bloody pain of the cross and the love that cries out of that image with a compassion that's more like soft soap. That's utterly foreign. Which is why when Jesus puts a child in the middle of his disciples and says, you won't enter the kingdom unless you become like this. It's not a sentimental picture. He's insulting them. It's offensive. They probably saw that and be like, what in the world? So what is going on? Remember the question was, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus answers by saying, you won't see my kingdom unless you become as a child. Or another way of putting it, my father receives you into his kingdom as parents receive a child into their world. My father receives you into his kingdom as parents receive a child into their world. Now ask any parent, what is the process like of receiving a child into their world? Is it cute, innocent, naive, meek, sentimental, easygoing? Is it a picture of mutual love and fulfillment? No, children are parasites. Children are parasites. They offer no utilitarian value to the parents, nothing whatsoever. They only take. Now, okay, you might wanna make the case they offer a different form of value, sure, but they offer no utility. A pregnant mother's body becomes the host to this child that doesn't care that he or she is wrecking their mom's body. Like my sister-in-law was laid up on bed rest for the last two months of, of the pregnancy. She had to lay in a bed. The child never apologized. Not that I know of. Charlie, he's a year and a half. He hasn't said he's sorry yet. The father sacrificed to take care of his pregnant wife. Society suffers because my, my sister-in-law had to lay in that bed for two months. So she couldn't contribute to society. The pain of birth, so I've heard, is quite excruciating. The utter dependency of an infant. I, I've, I've yet to hear of a case where the infant goes, mom, am I, am I crying too much tonight? I am so sorry. I, you got a big meeting in the morning, don't you? I forget, I was just being selfish. I'm, I'm gonna go back to bed. <laughs> I got an amen right there. 
No. Children are parasites. Everything in the parent's life changes to serve this child who frankly doesn't even know what is going on. And the child grows and learns, but it takes an incredible amount of patience to train this child who understands very little of the sacrifices made. And like, even when they try to do something good, like make their parents breakfast in bed, the breakfast is terrible. I don't wanna eat that breakfast. I'm gonna, but it's no utility. I'd rather make my own breakfast, you know? Nothing, even the gifts they offer to their, their parents, nothing is utilitarian. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus' kingdom is full of people who offer no value to him, we, who only take from him, who are parasitic on him, who use him and love him because like a dog, they know who feeds them. And as they grow, they learn a bit more, but it takes tremendous sacrifice on the part of Jesus to teach them again and again and again. And they make terrible breakfasts, which he eats. And if you think you offer value to Jesus, you'll never enter the kingdom. You don't understand the kingdom because like a child, you cannot offer any value to him. No utility whatsoever. There is no hierarchy. There's the parent and the children. Now that's not a sentimental picture, is it? It's a painful, sacrificial picture. What Jesus is saying to his disciples when they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom? What's the hierarchy look like? Who gets to be the proconsul? Who gets to be the prince or the princess of this region? Like, how does it work? How does the feudal system work here? And he's saying, you don't get it at all. My kingdom is not concerned with status, greater or less great. No one adds any value to my father's house. No one offers any utility to it. You're all parasites on me. The addict gets minus two points, but the pretty face gets plus one. That makes no sense in my kingdom. There's no status. You're only there because my father and I want you there. You did nothing to get there. None of you. Both are equally parasitic on my life, just like a child. And unless you recognize that you have nothing to offer me, you have nothing to bribe me with, you have nothing you can give me that will make you worthy of my father's house, that everything coming to you is pure gift in every way. And it's not dependent on the way you live or don't live like a child. Unless you realize that, you won't enter. Now that's already ruthless enough. That's already ruthless enough, but Jesus goes on. He doesn't just offer up the exemplar of a child as the, as the, the paradigm for the kingdom. He goes further. He goes to you, the disciples. He's tons of you language, second person language. You. You're causing the least of these, those who know they have nothing in them valuable to God, but are still loved and welcomed by God. You're causing them to stumble because of the church's obsession with the question, who is the greatest? In that section where he talks about cut it off and throw it away, tie the millstone, he's using second person language. He's talking to his disciples. It's all a response. They ask who's the greatest and he's saying, because of your obsession with this question, because of your making this space, the church, to look like the kingdoms of the world, these little ones who I'm going to, who offer no value and no status, they're looking at me like, what is this place? See, in Jesus' kingdom, if the question were asked, who is the greatest, we'd all be confused. 
and just like look at Jesus, him. Or we'd all be confused and look at each other and be like, it must be you because it's certainly not me. And not in a false humility type way, but a deep way of knowing that every, those worst nights in your life are totally seen by God. And he's kissed them and healed them and made them whole. But instead, the church, and especially the church in America, has become obsessed with this question of who is the greatest. And it's manifested itself in a bunch of different ways. We're a church of celebrity pastors. We're a church of denominations. We're churches of liars. All are ways that we've become obsessed with who is the greatest. Why do people not want to come join us? Because we have offered them no alternative compelling vision of a way of life that is actually worth living. A way of life that is actually different from the ways of life that they're trying out outside of this place. We look just like everyone else, but we put it in religious language. So celebrity pastors, we give value to those who look a certain way or talk a certain way. Those with certain skills who are more valuable than other skills. Denominations are just privileging certain interpretations of worship and theology that supposedly Jesus likes more than those other ones. And we've created the culture of liars because God forbid people be found out among us as sinners. God forbid people be found out among us as difficult to love or skeptics or doubters. We gotta put on a face and we can't let you see the real us because if you see the real us, I'll, I'll lose my gold stars. I'll move down on the totem pole. We've created this status and hierarchy. And for any of us who've grown up in the church, and of course, Hope Brooklyn, we're not gonna do it right either. Let's just get that on the table. We're gonna mess it up. Hopefully we always have the courage to ask forgiveness and to make amends. We're gonna mess it up. Know that. I'm a human still struggling to learn this. The leadership, we're all humans trying to struggle to learn this. We don't have to think far in our history to think of places where the ways the church has been obsessed with who's the greatest. And Jesus said, because we're obsessed with who's the greatest, those far away are looking at pseudo messiahs and denominations arguing vehemently over a story supposed to bring peace and reconciliation. And a church community that lies to each other's faces because they're afraid of showing how lonely and desperate and broken they really are and being judged for it. That's what's happened. And he's saying, cut it off. Whatever's causing it, just cut it off and throw it away. Love is not sentimental. Love is bloody. We will not create a people of goodwill. We will create disciples. And discipleship is learning to receive the humiliation that comes from having the gospel story spoken over you. So what do you think, Jesus asked? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one wanders away, won't he leave the 99 and go in search of the one? And he will rejoice over that one who willingly wandered away more than the 99 who had status, who never went away. Not that the 99 are unimportant, but Jesus, but they're not more important than the one. I mean, think about it. Jesus left the heavenly flock, the heavenly 99, to go in search of the one, you and I. It's interesting, in Luke's gospel, this story is prefaced with a, a qualification. 
And it says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. In a Jewish society, everyone was considered moral and clean until proven guilty. The pariahs, those who had no status in a Jewish context, were those who engaged in continual transgression of Jewish moral and cultural way of life. So tax collectors were Jewish men working for Rome, extorting their their brothers and sisters. So their family hated them because they were Jewish men getting rich for Rome. Sinners were those who in various ways just broke the the moral cultural laws of Judaism. So to be called a sinner and a tax collector was to walk around with a scarlet letter constantly blaring out. That's what's going on. To be called a sinner and a tax collector was the shorthand for the scarlet letter where you cannot turn without seeing people staring at you and you know they're judging you. And Jesus ate with them. The other day, I, uh, I had, we just moved to Brooklyn, my wife and I, and um, the closet space is a little bit tighter than we had in the story, so I had to sell some of my clothes. So I went to Buffalo Exchange. Y'all know Buffalo Exchange? And they sell back some of your clothes. Man, that was humiliating. I like had this huge bag of clothes and I put them on the counter. Of course, there's a line and the woman slowly picks up and inspects each cloth and then just puts it back in my bag. And just, nope, we don't want this one. Ooh, your style's not that great. And I'm like trying to shield it, wondering if everyone's staring at me. The humiliation, that's a bad example, but that's trying to get at that point of feeling like, oof, my style is off. And everyone's suddenly looking at me and like, ooh, who's this guy who Buffalo Exchange won't buy any of his clothes back? (laughs) Anna picked this outfit out, by the way, just FYI, so. (laughs) For Jesus to be called a friend of sinners and tax collectors was to accept the scarlet letter as his own. I hear sometimes Christians in America interpret this passage to mean Jesus was a friend of hedge fund managers and spiritualists, which is true. It's all true. So we have to go to them. And if it means getting a little tipsy at the nice VIP spots or eating a brownie here and there, so be it. We got to love them. That's not what's going on. Hedge fund managers are those with status in our society. Jesus is going to those without status in his society. So who are the sinners and tax collectors of our day? Who are the scarlet letter toters? Maybe the poor on the streets, but not the noble poor, the ones who are still half high scratching, asking for money. The ones who make us uncomfortable because we have no functional uh, inroad of relationship. Maybe the convicts or the sex offenders. Imagine Jesus sitting at a table full of sex offenders, eating with them, telling them the good news, telling them how deeply they're loved. That's what's going on here. Those who society looks at, and because of our hierarchy and our status scale and our scoreboard, we get uncomfortable by and judge and say, you know, you had your chance. You're now the untouchables. You're here and alive, but we kind of wish you weren't. Those are the ones Jesus went to. Those are the ones the good shepherd leaves and goes after. Those are the ones Jesus says are the children who are humble enough to hear that despite everyone looking at them and judging them and staring them, that the creator 
would want them at his table? Oh my goodness, that's good news. I want that. Humiliation is the name rightly given to the recognition of our sin. I remember uh, my sophomore year in college, I was on a trip with a group, and this is one of my worst moments. But basically, short of the story is I told a bad joke, a joke that I didn't think through all the way. And I was known as the Christian in the group. And people were just stunned. And they're like, whoa, Russell would say that? I still have nightmares about it sometimes. I feel such shame. That's, you know you have those moments in your life, those moments where you're just so, even still, you're humiliated. You feel like, oh, what did I do? That's the humiliation rightly given that comes with hearing. There's nothing we can offer to God. There's nothing he wants from us. Our hands are dirty, they're bloody, they're broken. We can't get them clean to enter into his kingdom. When you recognize that the world wishes you were dead because they are embarrassed by you, that you have nothing in you valuable or gives you status, then you feel the humiliation of the gospel. Humiliation that comes from recognizing how broken and parasitic and without status we are in our relationship with God. And the gospel is to feel that humiliation before God, to know that we are the untouchables in his eyes because of just how broken the world is. We did it, you did it, someone else did it to us. It's just broken through and through. We all know that. There's emptiness, there's desperation, there's dissatisfaction. It's incomplete. And the gospel is to feel that humiliation and then to see the face of Jesus interpose himself with tears and a smile and say, now you're mine. You're accepted and welcomed and given the best seat at the table because I have that authority and I give it to you because I want you, yes, you, at the table, at my father's table. Don't worry about your humiliating failure. I'll pay that price. I already did. Just come eat. But we're tempted to turn the gift of discipleship into status and hierarchy because that's all we've ever known. Friends, next week is our first preview service. Um, that's what we're inviting people to. That's kind of like our kickoff day. And, and obviously, like I said earlier, we're not going to do this perfect. But we all come from experiences where the church was painful. I don't want to be a church that creates false hierarchies that are foreign to the good news. I don't want to be a church concerned with who is the greatest. And I can't do that on myself. It's all of us. All of us are commissioned to be the disciples who create that culture. We won't be a church concerned with who is the greatest because the one most deemed by society as untouchable, they are the greatest. And not sentimentally deemed, like the one who is hardest to love, the one who is most difficult to love, they are the one, the one most a parasite on our grace, the with the biggest scarlet letter, they are the greatest at Hope Brooklyn. Outside, it's something else, but in here, in here, the gospel, the good news, the table is set and all are invited. All are invited. I'm gonna close with this story and invite you know, Jeff and Nathan back up before we take communion. Um, there was a guy named St. Lawrence, and he was a deacon of the church in Rome in the, around the 250s. 
And the story goes, he was in charge of the holy things uh, at the church. And uh, the story goes that um, the prefect of the city, hearing of the church's riches, that they had golden chalices and candlesticks and all these wonderful riches, they, they came, he came to St. Lawrence and he asked him, bring out your treasury. I wanna see like what's the best that the church has to offer. I wanna see the best the church has to offer. And St. Lawrence goes, okay, give me three days to gather up the treasury. And for three days, Lawrence goes about the city gathering the sick and the poor. The people he collected included a man with two eyeless sockets, a cripple with a broken knee, a one-legged man, a person with one leg shorter than the other, and others with grave infirmity. He wrote down their names and lined them up at the entrance to the church. Only then did he seek out the prefect to bring him to the church. And when the prefect entered the doors of the church, Lawrence points to the ragged company and says, behold the church's riches, take them. That's the gospel. That's what we're gonna be about at Hope Brooklyn. So you notice um, the way we're, we're set up here. We have the worship, those who help lead us into the presence of God through music on one side, the teaching at the other, but the center is reserved for the table. The center is reserved for the body and blood of Jesus because no matter what's said, no matter, no matter if the preaching is good or bad, no matter what kind of week you had, if you feel deserving, if you feel joyful, or if you feel like you just jacked it all up this past week, guess what? Jesus still, every week, week in and week out, comes to you and goes, my table is open for you. I want you here. I am so, you are most honored to be here. You are most welcome. And so it doesn't matter. At the end of every service, we always come to the table. And so we're getting to this, uh, this, this rhythm of having someone from our community um, sort of bring us to the table, uh, uh, tell a little 30-second minute uh, anecdote of something that happened in their week this past week or, or two weeks and how it connected to their relationship with God um, and why it connects to communion. And so Christina's gonna come up today and share with us. Um, yeah, let's give it up for Christina. Yeah. And as she comes... Uh, I just want to say a couple announcements about communion. Gluten-free elements are on the right, on the small plate. So if anyone's gluten-free, we have those. Um, we're going to cycle through because obviously this is the first time taking it in this space. So we're going to come out this way. And we don't have ushers welcoming you. So just come when you feel ready. We're going to be playing some music. Come out on this side and cycle back through that way. Um, parents, uh, the kids will be coming to take communion. So if you want to grab your child in the back of the room, and take communion as a family. We think that's really important. And uh, as soon as you receive it uh, during this time, we have been waiting all as a community to take together, but partake whenever you're ready. So if you receive it, um, go ahead and partake. So yeah, Christina. Christina.